1: Welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and this program, Autism One, a Conversation of Hope, for Tuesday, February 9th. I'm Terry Oranga talking to Dr. Beth Latimer and Laura Matheus today about pandas. Dr. Latimer was chief of the child neurology division at Georgetown University Hospital for five years and then worked at Fairfax Hospital before opening her own private practice of neurology in Bethesda. Doctor Latimer specializes and caring for cerebral palsy patients who require spasticity management in addition to her general neurology and headache practice. She has been cited in the Washingtonian magazine as an outstanding neurologist. Laura Matthews has an MBA from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She and her husband are raising two young children and advocate for families struggling to find medical support for the treatment of PANDAS. Ladies, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. What is meant by the acronym PANDAS? Um,
2: This is Dr. Latimer. The acronym PANDAS refers to Pediatric Autoimmune
1: Neuropsychiatric Disorders After Strep. Okay, so we have the the Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric Disorders Associated with Streptococcal Infection, and um, what's the criteria for diagnosing someone with PANDAS? Well, the the criteria for diagnosing somebody is, is actually
2: currently in evolution. The current criteria... Um That is most well established is the criteria that was used at the NIH for their research studies. Um, and that criteria required uh, one episode of a strep infection followed by one episode of um, neuropsychiatric changes such as predominant os- obsessive compulsive um, changes, and um, followed by recovery followed by a second strep infection, and then uh, exacerbation of symptoms again. I think everyone who's in, in the community treating this realizes that it's not such a good idea to let these kids keep having exacerbations, that they don't always recover well. So um, there's a group of um, individuals trying to get together now to re- establish a new set of criteria, um, probably based on the initial presentation.
1: Laura, does a... A parent always know when their child's been exposed to strep, and and how relevant is that? No, I mean, yeah, I think a lot of parents understand. Oh, my
3: child has a sore throat, um, but there's a lot of cases where a child will present with sudden behavioral changes that are dramatic changes from what the parents saw, say a week ago, and the child may have a sore throat or they may complain of an earache, but. You know, as a parent, you have young children who are complaining of aches and pains all the time, and it doesn't necessarily have to be they're in bed with a fever and they can't swallow and their glands are swollen. Um, You know, sometimes that is the case, and you know that they have a strep throat. Um, Sometimes the behaviors show up a week or so after they've been sick, and so it's a lot harder to make that correlation between the illness and the sudden onset of OCD or tics or severe separation anxiety, you just know that something dramatic has changed, and it's sometimes hard to make that connection. Well, you know, when
1: we think about strep, we do usually think about strep throat. So do these kids have what looks like uh, strep throat, or can they get strep as a provoking agent or something triggering underlying strep? I, is that for Dr. Latimer or
2: either of you? Yes. I mean, I would I would say that there is certainly cases where many children seem to have subclinical or asymptomatic strep infections that parents are not aware of and the kids are not complaining of significant symptoms that then lead to autoimmune reactions to the strep. Um, they're also seeing this in the cardiology community with an increase in the rate of rheumatic heart disease where Maybe 20 or 30 years ago, it was clear that someone had scarlet fever or a very severe sore throat, was not treated, and then had rheumatic heart disease. Now they're seeing an increase in the incidence of even rheumatic heart disease, which is also an autoimmune response to strep, in kids who have not had very symptomatic strep infections. The strep can be, um, in the, you know, it can be in the tonsils, it can be in the, in the nares or in the nose, it can be in the sinuses, it can be in the, um, in the perianal region. Sometimes little girls even will get vaginal strep infections. Um, so it can be in the form of impetigo. So it seems like the strep is um, much less um, um, symptomatic than it was in the past, causing these types of symptoms. So there's even some concern that there might be a different strain of strep causing PANDAS than um, what we are typically accustomed to seeing.
1: Okay, so it sounds like not every child who ends up um showing tics for example, um necessarily had a raging sore throat. Um conversely, does every child who has strep um come down with obsessive compulsive disorder? Uh absolutely
2: not. There seems to be a sub uh, a population that is vulnerable to this. Um, and there's a much higher incidence in this um, patient population of a family history of other autoimmune disorders. Um, There are often family members who have had um, autoimmune reactions to strep in the past, such as rheumatic heart disease. So there's a vulnerable population, and then there is a trigger.
1: Okay. Sounds similar to the autism community. Well, Dr. Latimer, a little bit earlier, Laura was talking about the outward uh, symptoms. So what are some of the outward behaviors that you see that patients with these symptoms, uh, syndromes, exhibit, and what kind of clinical presentation are you looking for? Uh, with PANDAS, the, the most um, significant problem is the obsessive-compulsive
2: disorder. And these kids will develop the obsessive-compulsive disorder frequently overnight, in a very very quick period they'll go to bed one night and be perfectly fine and the parents can date it to a moment in the car or sitting at breakfast or one day where their child developed sudden severe obsessive compulsive disorder sometimes it's 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 not that um sudden and onset but it often is um and children who have PANDAS the, the obsessive compulsive disorder presents about 3 years earlier than it typically presents in the general population of people who develop more typical obsessive compulsive disorder and they seem to have a very characteristic constellation of symptoms. They complain of intrusive um, voices. They complain of their fears of contamination. They're afraid they're going to die. They're afraid their parents are going to die. They have um, um, a very unusual symptom of very frequent urination, which I've never I've not seen in other children with OCD. And this probably has to do with the way the basal ganglia and the dopamine receptors are in the in the bladder. Um um, they have um, bedwetting, which is also not seen in children with o c d um They often have anorexia without um, body dysmorphic features, meaning they will not eat anything, but they don't think they're skinny so they won't eat because they're afraid they're gonna choke, so some of these kids come in and they've lost incredible amounts of weight um um they have rage attacks um um and then they also have the movement disorder we see associated with this. So when, when strep in the 1800s caused um, a similar, somewhat similar condition called Sydenham's korea, people had very dramatic, dancey type of movements that they used to call Saint Vitus's dance, where their arms and legs would be flying in a somewhat dancey posture. Um, and when you examine these children um, carefully, they also have what we call Korea form movements, korea spelled chorea spelled C H O R E A. Where if you hold their hands, they have a piano-like movements of their fingers, and they just have a tremendous amount of trouble holding still.
1: You mentioned the basal ganglia, and you also mentioned uh, that symptoms could come on overnight. How are these things related? Uh, The basal ganglia is a a,
2: a collection of; it's part of the gray matter of the brain. It is sort of a central way station in the brain. Um, where a lot of things come and a lot of things go go from it. It modulates movement. It modulates mood. And when things go awry there, people develop um, movement disorders so that they have um, tremor, dystonia, or um, chorea. And they also have very severe behavioral stuff like obsessive-compulsive disorder, um, attention deficit, um, hyperactivity types of symptoms. Um, and mood issues, Um, and um, it's all coming out of that same location in the brain.
1: So how does an infectious illness cause this? How does it affect the brain and then uh, thereby create the behavioral manifestations? Well,
2: what uh, Madeline Cunningham in Oklahoma has demonstrated is that these children develop increased enzymatic activity in the basal ganglia, after the strep, and they also have anti-neuronal antibodies to the basal ganglia. So if you, when we send this kid's blood, blood off um, for testing, they are making antibodies probably against the strep, but it's like any other autoimmune condition. Sometimes the body gets mixed up and it makes antibodies against itself. And we have multiple examples of this in neurology. Sometimes when people get a vaccination or an illness, they'll make antibodies against their own nerves and become paralyzed. But in this particular condition, we believe that the antibodies um, are made probably in an attempt to react to the strep. But in a maladaptive fashion, they go and and, and attach or do something to the basal ganglia and through a process called molecular mimicry, turn that basal ganglia on and cause excitation in that part of the brain.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay, so... I know with um, the use of the adjuvant um, squalene in vaccines, the um, the body can attack its own fatty tissue in the brain. So it would it would seem like, from what you're saying, there's is there some similarity between the strep and the bi- tissue of the basal ganglia that would mix the body up? Well, I'm not familiar with
2: the adjuvant you're speaking about, but the um, the body reacts to infections um by making um molecules that will fight the infections and sometimes they are direct and specific and sometimes they are um become autoantibodies meaning they actually attack your own body and, and that's or they affect your own body and i think that's what we're seeing in this case
1: okay so pandas is considered an autoimmune disease yes it is and you've explained the connection between the basal ganglia and and symptoms we see. Um, was there anything else you wanted to add to that, Laura? Um, no, I think um,
3: you know that that is the process. I think the confusion that parents run into is um, one trying to prove or find out if there ever was an infection um if if it missed the symptoms, but yet there's this sudden onset change in their child, um, you know, that the other option is if you've missed the actual presentation of the disease to then start looking at blood tests as a way to look backward in time.
1: Okay. That's great. We're going to pick up with this when we come back from break. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. We'll be right back at the Voice America Health and Wellness channel. Thank you.
5: Come.
1: Back with Dr. Beth Latimer and Laura Mathias, we're talking about pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric disorders associated with streptococcal infection, or PANDAS. And before the break, we were talking with Laura. Laura, you know, I know um, that in many cases of PANDAS, the the symptoms are so debilitating and cause the child and the family such great suffering. Um, yet mainstream Medical practitioners can still, uh, throw the family off target when they're looking for answers. When should a parent get an inkling that their child may need a workup for pandas? I think the biggest difference
3: is, is that it's, it's not something where your kid has always been a little quirky and it's just more of the same, but maybe a little bit, you know, more severe. In most cases, this is a knock you off your feet. What just happened to my child kind of event. Um, where, like Dr. Latimer said, you know, it's almost like the stomach flu where you can go to bed feeling fine and then in the middle of the night, you know, your world is entirely upside down. Um, when something like that happens and a parent turns to a pediatrician and the doctor says, well, you know, the throat looks fine, there's nothing wrong, um, it can be very discouraging. And so sometimes you get led down to seeing a therapist um who may or may not be looking for pandas, and it, when something doesn't feel right and you're saying this is, this just isn't my child, this isn't what what he was a, a week ago um, then it's really start you should be really looking at a medical cause first, I think, um, not that there may not be some other thing going on um not every child has pandas it's not the be all answer, but I think it's certainly something that should be ruled out first before you go turning to, you know, more traditional psychiatric help or um, medications in that sense. Um, so like I was saying, if you miss the actual physical signs in a physical exam of, of strep, you can do ASO tighter tests for strep or anti-DNASB tests Um Although, in our case, we had scarlet fever and a positive rapid strep test, and we're encouraged to go get an ASO titer test just for conclusive proof, um, and my son tested negative on ASO titer tests, so it's, it's not a be-all and end-all, but it at least is one other indicator um, that the body's been fighting an infection.
1: So, Dr. Latimer, um, Laura's been talking about the antistreptolysin O and ribonuclease B titer tests. Can you explain to our listeners what they are? Um, they're both um,
2: titers that rise after someone's had an infection with a the streptococcal. Um, they've had a streptococcal infection. Um, the, an- the antistreptolysin antibody will rise re- relatively quickly, um, and might go away relatively quickly within a month or two. Anti-DNA B tends to be more of a sign of chronic strep. So um, um in the early days of treating this, you know, 5 to 10 years ago, we were treat- just testing the ASOs, but we found and then I found that often when we did the ASOs they were negative the anti-DNA B's were very very high. So we're doing both of them now. There are multiple other types of t- strep as well. Um But um, sometimes the the, the titers are missed. You know, you miss the initial um, infection, and the the titers come down. But then there's immune memory, and then it becomes really an immune-mediated condition.
1: Mm. Okay, very interesting. Well, everyone with PANDAS have the same type of history with antibody titers. From what Laura said, it doesn't seem that way. Well, it
2: hasn't been studied in a prospective fashion, so we don't know the answer to that. Um, I think that you see different children at different phases of their disease. So if someone's just had a strep infection three or four weeks ago, very likely their titers are going to be very high. It's the kids who we see who are two years down, and they've had this illness for two years down, and we don't know what those titers could be anywhere at that point. Mm -hmm. And the children tend to be sicker and harder to treat as well.
1: Mm -hmm. Now I understand that antibodies are used for pandas. So what do, uh, excuse me, antibiotics. So what do antibiotics do to antibody titers?
2: Um, antibiotics don't do anything to antibody titers per se except prevent further infections, which would then prevent further rises in antibody titers. So there's two components to treating, um, uh, pandas. You know, it's, it's almost to me like asthma or any other immune-mediated condition that's triggered by, that has a trigger. You want to prevent the trigger and then you want to deal with the immune reaction to it. Mm -hmm. So putting kids on antibiotics, um, is, in many cases, necessary and was shown by the NIH in their studies to um, provide for a more favorable outcome in the next year or two, probably because the kids avoided getting recurrent strep infections. Oh, good point. Okay. Antibiotics,
1: how long?
2: Well, if you had um, if you have Korea, or rheumatic heart disease, um, which is the old, more um, classic uh, autoimmune reactions to strep, which can affect the heart and the brain, We treated those kids till they were in their twenties. I think in pandas we don't quite know yet. It's um, I think the jury's out. But for right now, we're treating them for pretty extended periods of time to their adolescence to certain.
1: Does the body become immune to the antibiotics? Do the antibiotics become resistant? Do you need to take probiotics at the same time for your gut? Well, that's the
2: big concern, and that's what every, I think that's what's created some controversy in this. Nobody wants people on antibiotics unnecessarily, um, and nobody wants to create um, resistant strands of bacteria. Um so um and and I've seen several kids from Pennsylvania, for example, who are on a very an antibiotic called clindamycin, which is a particularly hazardous antibiotic because mm-hmm. it can lead to a certain type of colitis um, but um when it's necessary, you have to use it. but I think they've developed a very resistant strain there now, I don't think it was the antibiotics that were there necessarily that led to the resistance strain. I think it's just resistant, which is required these heavy hitting antibiotics so um Um, you you want to use the least um, aggressive antibiotic that you can um, and keep them on a dose that prevents them from having further infections. You also want to look for where the infection is. Look at the tonsils. Look at the adenoids. If they're big and look infected, take them out. I know the NIH does not recommend that because they haven't studied it, but I think from a clinical standpoint and a judgment standpoint, it's very reasonable to have an ANT take a look and see if they look diseased or not. You want to look at the sinuses to see if they're filled with fluid and could be a potential source of strep. And you want to do a careful exam to see if there's any evidence of perianal strep or vaginal strep to make sure you you know, eradicate the strep in that particular child and in the rest of the family. Because often another child in the family has it and keeps and is passing it back and forth or a dog carries it and is passing it back and forth. So we go through the whole, this whole thing about really knocking it out. Try to get rid of the antibiotics. And probiotics are very important
1: to sort of recolonize the gut and the intestines with healthy bacteria. Mm -hmm. And probiotics should be taken as far away from the antibiotic as possible. Um, All right, you mentioned clindamycin. Uh, It it doesn't sound like that's the one most commonly used. What are the antibiotics that are most commonly used? Um, Amoxicillin. Amoxicillin. with or without clavulanic acid, which would become
2: Augmentin, mm-hmm. um, which I know has become popular now. It probably really mostly prevents bad strains of staph, but amoxicillin at high doses is probably adequate. Um, Zithromax, which is um, a ZPAC,
1: People know often about it as a ZPAc. Those are the two most common antibiotics. Right, and, and Zithromax can be taken if a person's uh, allergic to penicillin. Now, how, Laura, how did your son do with antibiotics? Um, He, you know, we started off on amoxicillin
3: with our pediatrician before we started seeing Dr. Latimer, and um, he would respond very well, but it was, we'd always finish a 10-day course. You know, our local pediatrician is not, was not comfortable doing a longer-term treatment, and in our case, we think that the strep had colonized in his adenoids, so when he went to get a rapid strep test, it would come back negative, But his glands would be swollen, and as soon as he finished the antibiotics, we'd start to see a return of behaviors. Mm. And this went on for about 10 months, and so over time his behaviors didn't really subside after the 10 days. Um, So we did do a tonsillectomy and an adenoidectomy, and we saw tremendous improvement in his behaviors over the summer. Plus he was out of school, so he wasn't constantly exposed in summertime, so he kind of returned to health. And we saw a kid come back to us, That we hadn't seen in a really long time. And he was this really cool little kid. And so we had, you know, it was really heartening to see all of that. Um, But then with the return of the school year, you get nervous. And um, eventually we didn't have the the success that we once had with the amoxicillin. Um, He's now on augmentin and so far has been doing really well. He did have um, one struggle over the Christmas holiday when my daughter got infetigo and a sinus infection and exposed him um, and his body reacted to the strep that was in the house. Um, and we did, a course, of prednisone and that brought everything back in check. So at least now we feel like the disease is manageable and it doesn't turn the family upside down on its head and you spend months trying to advocate and find a doctor for help. You, finding the right doctor that will understand the disease and support you um, it makes all the difference in the world because then you can worry about helping your child get well instead of feeling like you're doing battle against the medical community and that this huge burden is on your shoulders.
1: Well, I've got to think that if the pediatrician is taking the child off of antibiotics prematurely, that's going to uh, cause you know, a super infection in the the germs to become resistant, and then um you'll have to move to another drug. Am I on the right track here, dr Latimer?
2: Um, I don't know that that's necessarily true. I think the pediatricians are try- you know are trying to be relatively conservative in following the guidelines by the American Academy of Pediatrics. I just think that um the you know the the we've done a very poor job of um supporting the research that was done at the n i h um and um, advocating for these kids, and I think that that's changing now. We're trying to really get the information out there and help them.
1: Okay. Well, at the very least, I think it's a, a good testimonial for homeschooling. Yeah. What do you think, Laura? <laughs> well, if, that, if my son would listen to me, then perhaps, but <laughs> he's not a very good candidate
3: for homeschooling. Um, we just don't have that dynamic. Um, he wants me to be his mom, not his teacher. Um you know, so we there's good and bad in every situation. Ironically, when my son was so sick in the first grade, um, he's in the second now, he um, he was very introspective, and so public school is giving him a chance to kind of spread his social wings a little bit more.
1: Okay. We'll pick up with this when we come back to the Voice America Health and Mars channel with Dr. Latimer and Laura, and uh, thank you to our sponsor Enmeddico. We'll be right back. Opinions,
0: options, answers. Voice America Health & Wellness. Tune in on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for Healing the Grieving Heart, the program that takes you on a journey through grief after the death of a child.
1: We're back with Dr. Beth Latimer and Laura Matthews talking about PANDAS. Dr. Latimer, uh, Laura had referred to the use of uh, steroids with her son. Can you tell our listeners about the use of corticosteroids in the treatment of PANDAS? Should they be used? If so, how long? Should it be brief? And what's a steroid
2: burst? Well, um, the use of steroids um, has not been studied in a prospective manner, Um, but they are being used. Um, When the NIH did their original study comparing um, plasma exchange and IVIG, which are two other treatments, they specifically um, avoided using steroids in these children for a very logical reason, and that was because there's always a fear of causing a psychosis in children on steroids, because steroids can do that. So they avoided the steroids. Now, what we found in practice, many practitioners who are actually treating this condition is that when you put these children on steroids, they don't become irritable or have insomnia or become rageful, which is more typical of other children when they're on steroids. They calm down. And they become much more settled. So, um, um, given the fact that we, you know, know that this is an autoimmune, um, condition and we use steroids for all kinds of other things, asthma, poison ivy that are, um, without any problems. We've been, several of us have been using steroids to, sort of tampon down the immune system and stop the reactivity. And um, um, I use steroids, a steroid burst, usually for two to four weeks, depending upon the patient's reaction. Um, And I I consider that as a very safe amount of time to use steroids um, because you don't really have to taper to worry about long-term effects of steroids. And if you have a very positive response to that in terms of a behavioral improvement, then I think you really know what you're dealing with.
1: Laura, did you want to add anything to that about your son's experience? Yeah, I do. Um, When my son was
3: um, really little, like one and two, and he would get very bad croup. Um, We live in New England, so it happened a lot. And we would go on prednisone four or five days. And by day two, we couldn't wait for the fifth day to get there because he was just off the walls, crazy with energy. Um, And that was pre-Pandas. Now... It, like Dr. Latimer said, it has the exact opposite effect. He calms down. He's able to focus. Um, he doesn't get crazy. It, it has almost the exact opposite effect on him now um, because I think what's going on in his head is, is different. Um, so we've had great success with it. Um, you know, We're not using it all the time. We've only used it twice um, in the past year. So it's been very, very effective for us. And I, the only caution I would add is that anecdotally I've heard that there is some concern that um, prednisone may exacerbate a true tick situation or Tourette's, um unlike pandas, because something else may be going on. Um, so I just didn't want... I, I just want to throw a caution out there and that it's not necessarily the answer for everyone, um, especially if ticks are a concern.
1: Yeah, it seems... Um to be an important distinction as to what kind of brand of ticks, if you will, whether it's caused by pandas or something else. Is that what you're trying to say, Lar? Yeah, that, you know, if you have a a different
3: situation, obviously prednisone is helping because it's reducing inflammation, which is what's behind the pandas, Um, but if you have another medical situation that's not being caused by the same circumstances, then prednisone may not be an appropriate
1: treatment. Right. Um, you know, Dr. Latimer you said something earlier that just um kind of uh, raised my antenna and that's that people didn't think uh steroids, you know people were wary of steroids because they could cause, you know, psych psych psychosis, I think you said, but that's correct. Pandas itself the causes something that looks like a psychiatric condition. So, yeah, it actually does cause a psychiatric condition. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's a really important distinction uh, for to make that uh, medical medical issues can cause psychiatric issues, and that you don't have to resort to using quote unquote psychiatric psychotropic psychoactive drugs first. You can try to heal the body of whatever the real medical issue is. Well, certainly there are many things that can cause
2: children to have an acute
1: psychosis that are not
2: um, what you would typically think of as primary psychiatric problems. Like central nervous system lupus can do it. Um, Wilson's disease can do it. Drug use can do it. Um, um, Just high fever with delirium can do it. Um, So you really have to, I think, do a medical evaluation on all these kids as you do the psychiatric evaluations to be certain you're not missing something.
1: That's a, a really good point, um, that medical evaluations are needed. Okay, so we've talked about antibiotics. We've talked about corticosteroids. You briefly mentioned intravenous immunoglobulin, also known as IVIG, and uh, let's also talk about plasmapheresis. What are each of these things, and uh, are they it's this more successful, a more successful protocol when they are used uh, together, concurrently, sequentially, what have you? Um,
2: don't know about the sequentially or concurrently because that has not been studied. Um, there's um, the, the two methods, you know, the, the, so the, there's two arms of this. One is to deal with the infection, prevent it, eradicate it, treat it. The dogs, everybody, get it out of the household. The second is to deal with the immune reaction. So the first step in my protocol is is to give uh, a course of steroids to see if immune modulation is effective. And if it is effective, and when it is, it's often dramatically effective. Um, Sometimes kids, particularly if you get them very, very early in the illness, they just get better, and they go away and everything's fine. Um, They might have an exacerbation a year later with another infection, but they often just do extremely well and the symptoms resolve. But for some children, when they come off the steroids after a month, they regress, and they do very poorly. And that's the, those are the children who are very significantly ill, who are out of school, um, um, having anorexia, or having rage attacks, um, miserable, the whole family is in disarray, who need more aggressive treatment. And that's where either IVIG or plasma exchange comes in. Both of these things are aimed at um, sort of disrupting the immune um, system as it's currently operating. Um, IVIG, nobody completely understands how it works um, would be the correct answer, but basically what it does is sort of reboot the whole immune system. You're giving exogenous IVIG from pool donors and putting it in. So you're... Restoring an an immune system, you're giving more immunoglobulin that could potentially make a child more resistant to infection. And you're also basically blocking all the bad antibodies that are in there. So that's the IVIG treatment. The plasma exchange is um, sort of the opposite. You put a a central line in or a big IV in, and you take the child's own blood, you run it through a machine, just like you would when you give... um, similar to what you would do when you would give platelets, take out all of the plasma, which has all the antibodies in it, and put the blood back in with no antibodies. So you're cleaning the blood of antibodies. Mm-hmm. Laura, do you have anything
1: to add to this? Um, No, I mean, I think I'm going to yield to the medical profession there. Oh, okay. I thought you might have heard of some experiences or something like that. Um, all right. Well, I'd like you to please, Laura, share with our listeners now a little bit more about your experiences with your son, things that your family went through.
3: So, you um, mean when we did plasmapheresis or in just in general with the disease?
1: Well, yeah, plasmapheresis would be good, and then in general with your quest for finding med- real medical help. Okay. Um, when, what drove us, to, as I said, when my, my son had a tonsillectomy, his tonsillectomy, is DNA. Um, we saw
3: dramatic improvement, um, but prior to that, we had had his blood tested by, by Madeline Cunningham, um, and his enzyme levels, his Camkinase two levels, were 183 percent above normal, um, and he had been so severely debilitated, um, he he would twitch and tick like he was being electrocuted, and he would do this in the classroom. Um, And thankfully, at first grade, the kids were pretty kind. Um, Our concern was that as he got older, they wouldn't be so kind. And he actually got so bad that he would freeze, almost like a statue for like the count of three or four seconds. If he was walking across the street, he would freeze. If he was in the middle of a sentence, he would freeze. And that was pretty um, jolting. So our concern was that he had been sick for so long, for about 10 months, and although we were seeing great improvement, we really didn't think we could afford another year of illness if he were to go back to school uh, and not be treated. He was still, even after his TNA, he still had tics, um, vocal and motor. And it, it was just the fear that the nightmare would come back again. So we did plasmapheresis um, with Dr. Latimer. And um, initially, after after the procedure, he got a little worse for a few weeks, um, which isn't always the case. Not everyone's had that experience. Um, some families have, and that was a little hard to, to feel like, oh my gosh, I've done something that's now made it worse. Um, but after that, he did recover by leaps and bounds. Um, and things got, things got as easy for him as they should have been all along. Um, he was he went from having practically no friends in the first grade to having, you know, coming home and telling us that he now had ten friends. And life was, you know, it was making friends was so easy for him now. Um, things were clicking in school academically that had been so hard for him to do uh, afterwards or, or prior to this. He would sit down. Homework would be homework would be a 45-minute ordeal when you knew that other kids in his class were taking five and 10 minutes. And the frustrations at homework, because it was like he knew the answer, but he had to get through the thought had to get all the way through jello just to make it onto paper, and it was so frustrating for him um, these things these things went away um, and it was just a night and day difference, so for us, it felt like although he still has the sensitivity to when he's exposed to strep, we at least felt that we had done something to help his body heal and not have such a, a hair, hair trigger um, with his body already predisposed to react, um, at least we had done a step towards helping him get healthy. Um, IVIG is still a consideration for us. Um, some of our decision came down to insurance purposes. Um, our insurance covered plasma which specifically for PANDAS. Um, it does not specifically cover it for IVIG, so that steered us a little bit as far as having been so battle-weary, you know, let's go do something to make him healthy, but um, do it with the support of our insurance company.
1: All right, and we're going to pick up with what was going on with your son, and I'd like to get a, an interpretation from Dr. Latimer when we come back to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Thanks to Enzymedica. We'll be right back.
5: You've read the books, listened to the CDs,
3: and gone to the workshops to learn spirituality. Now there's a way to help you live it every single day. The Spiritual Workout with Stephen Morrison. Call with any issue at all and Stephen will passionately help you see which of 15 universally spiritual concepts apply to your circumstance and how. Practice every Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on The Spiritual Workout on 7th Wave Network. It's
5: a practical path to a happier, more peaceful, and richer life experience.
0: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One A Conversation of Hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866 472 5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry.
1: We're back with Laura Mathias and Dr. Latimer talking about pandas. And um, before the break, Laura, was uh, you were sharing about your son and how he had plasmapheresis, and then he had some real challenges uh, that seemed worse there for a little while, and then he got a lot better. Uh, Dr. Latimer, can you explain this phenomena? Um,
2: Well, I think that... um, we see often a sort of a sawtooth pattern in terms of recovery. Um, these kids, when they're brought into the hospital also, they're, into, they're in an ICU setting frequently to put the lines in, um, removed from their homes, It's a, in, a, in a very vulnerable phase in their lives, and it's, it's really disruptive and difficult for them. And once you take the antibodies out, you still have that inflammation in the brain. It takes a while for it to go away. Um, Like many other things that happen to the brain, like a concussion or anything else, it can happen in a second, but it takes a while for it to recover. So um, I don't think it's at all unusual for any injury to the brain to take some time to recover, even once you've removed the insult.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay. And, Laura, I know that you wanted to share something about a study from Columbia with mice. Yeah, the, I, the week we were at Georgetown um, having they
3: published a Columbia um, published a study where they had run the theory of PANDAS, and, the, and Dr. Latimer can explain this better, but they gave PANDAS to mice. Um, and we were very, very excited about it in the hospital um, with a handful of other families who thought this was great. And, of course, everyone else was looking at us like we had two heads because nobody could understand why we'd be happy that Panda, mice had pandas. Um, but the, the behaviors that the mice exhibited were so classic to what we, what we knew was happening to our kids. And the other thing about pandas is that it's not just ADHD or OCD or chicks or any of these behaviors, it's everything at once. I mean, you get hit with a dozen different comorbid diseases overnight and that's i think what makes pandas so hard to deal with because you're not just learning how to handle one type of symptom um and what was nice about the the mouse study was it sort of conclusively said yes this the theory of pandas is possible and it we can do it to other animals and we see sort of similar behaviors um so it was sort of very validating for us to not Feel like we were crazy.
1: Absolutely, Dr. Latimer. Do you have any further observations on the study from Columbia, Yeah, I think the study from Columbia
2: was really an elegant study, and I think what they pro- what they did is they they actually, um, rather than focusing on the infectious component, they immunized the mice with an in- inactivated form of the bacteria, so they did not cause an infection in the mice. So they just, but they did cause the mice um, t- to develop antibodies, and then the way they injected the antibodies from the immunized mice into the non-immunized mice they caused the symptoms right nice. without actually causing an infection so they what they did was they proved that the antibodies were causing the symptoms at least in this group of mice so it was sometimes these little hallmark animal studies go a long way towards bringing us um the the whole scientific community um along in terms of believing that these things are real
1: mm mm-hmm. good point Okay, um, but what does this do? Tell us about treatment. Well, I think, again, there's two components
2: to treatment, and I harp on this all the time. You've got to get rid of the source of the infection, but you have to treat the immunologic condition. Mm-hmm. You have to treat the immunologic condition. Okay. Because once it's started, it can reactivate with almost any other uh, infect, you know, infection or thing that activates the immune, you know, immune system. So you have to knock down the immunologic system.
1: Where do you think research needs to go in this area?
2: Well, I think research needs to um, um, progress the way it's going. I think the NIH is hopefully um, going to receive some funding to do some more studies. Um, And I think that um, we need to – there's many of us who have been treating this who are going to publish at least our observational work, and we're going to have some meetings um, to compare and and discuss what we found and hopefully come up with – uh, newer and easier approaches to treat these kids. Um, I think My own gut, although this has not been really studied intensively at this point or in great detail, is that if there was better education and we got the kids very early because there was more awareness, we wouldn't be talking about plasma exchange and IVIG quite as often.
1: Right. Well, you know, and it's that way in autism, too. Laura, what resources are out there for families? Um, there there is a
3: support group um, is called latitudes um, you can google it It's a bunch of parents um, who share their ideas and their experiences uh, on pandas there's pandasnetwork.org which um, is put together by a parent of a child with pandas who has compiled a lot of information to help a parent understand what's going on. Um, there's Beth Maloney's groups at the Panda Foundation, which is trying to advocate for better awareness of the disease. Um, and then there's OC Foundation, which is also trying to compile some information on pandas and uh, get some researchers together to try and move this disease forward. Very good. Ladies, any closing thoughts? No, I just appreciate your, your letting other parents know because I think that like Dr. Latimer said the earlier, a parent is aware of the disease and that that may be a component in their child's behavior, the faster you can get treatment, I do think the outcome is a whole lot brighter.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Latimer and Laura, I'd like to thank you for making sure that dialogue about PANDAS moves forward so more kids can be spared suffering and debilitation. To our listeners, Dr. Latimer and Laura will be speaking at the Autism One Generation Rescue 2010 conference in May. Please visit ww.autism1.org. Registration is open. I'd like to let listeners know about a new book coming up from Skyhorse Publishing called Cutting Edge Therapies for Autism. This book includes many of your favorite doctors and researchers, and it can be pre-ordered from Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Thank you to this program's sponsor, Enzymedica. For questions about this program, please email me at taranga at oneorg And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.